Uh, would you turn to Mark chapter 10? Mark chapter 10 and verse 28. Just a couple of verses that are, that, that come just after Jesus has had that interaction with the rich young man. It's um, a well-known episode and because it's so well known we often miss the bit that happens immediately afterwards. Um, preachers spend too long on the rich young man and then skip over what is a very, very significant promise that comes out of it. So this rich young man was, was eager to jump on board the Jesus train, figured he would be a prime candidate, and Jesus called on him to give away the thing that had become defining in his life, and he wouldn't. So he left his encounter with Jesus sad. Hadn't played out the way he'd hoped it would be. And so ever the emotionally intelligent soul, Peter, <laughs> enters the conversation in verse 28 by pointing out how fantastic he and the others have been in their discipleship. So verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. Thank goodness you've got us around. He's failed discipleship 101, but we, we are your star kind of students. And notice what Jesus says to Peter. Jesus says, truly I say to you. And when Jesus says, truly I say to you, that's his way of kind of ramping up the attention. This is not just a kind of shooting the breeze kind of comment he's about to make. This is a, hey, people are going to embroider what I'm about to say on tea towels and anything else in the, in the future. This is... One of those kinds of comments. So truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Uh, notice a few things. Jesus is assuming people will leave things to follow him. Okay, that's basic discipleship. Uh, Jesus is always upfront about that. He doesn't hide that. He doesn't bury it in the small print. He's just open about that. Discipleship is costly. Moreover, Jesus assumes the most costly things to leave will be familial and relational. There will be some for whom allegiance to Jesus necessitates leaving home and kin. Thankfully, that is not the case for all of us. It is the case for some people. They really do leave their entire family and relationship kind of structure. But notice Jesus' response even to that prospect is not to say, yeah, it's just going to really stink, but don't worry, you get heaven. No, Jesus says, even in this age, however much we may leave behind to follow him, it is always spectacularly worth it to follow Jesus. 
however much we leave, Jesus will replace in godly kind and far greater measure. Even a hundredfold. And again, he casts it in familial and relational language. Uh, this is the real prosperity gospel. Jesus isn't saying, if you give a dollar to me, I'll give you a hundred back immediately. He is saying, we will always receive from him, even in this life, far, far more than we ever leave behind for him. But there's a challenge. This is an unusual promise. Most of the promises of Jesus are just, they, they land on us, it's, it's what Jesus is going to do for us, and that's it. This is a promise that is unusual because it, it involves us to help fulfill it. Because we are the brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and sons and daughters that Jesus is promising Uh, Psalm 68 says, God places the lonely in families. Our church fellowships, our Christian friendships, are the family in which God is wanting to place those who otherwise don't have family. So let's apply this even more with what may be an uncomfortable question. I don't know how many churches are, are represented here, and I don't know the churches represented here, so this is not loaded. But it's a chance for each of us to do a little bit of a diagnostic on our own church family. If someone from the gay community came to faith, and praise God this happens a lot, and they end up at your church, According to Mark 10 and the promise of Jesus, that person should be able to say that as a result of joining your church, that they now have more family in their life and not less. That they now have more community in their life than they had before. And more intimacy in their life than they had before. So thinking about our own church fellowships, do you think they could say that? Will these people now be able to say, do you know what, I have, I have mothers and fathers, I have sons and daughters, I have brothers and sisters like I've never had in my life. If we think the answer's no, friends, we're calling Jesus a liar. If the answer's yes, then we are creating the very kinds of narratives we've just been talking about needing in our witness. If the answer to this question is yes and visibly yes, 
that will take care of the PR. So what can we do to be a church that, that embodies and manifests that hundredfold promise Jesus is giving us in Mark 10? What can we do to help as a church community, to help those who are LGBT and, and coming into the church, those who are being discipled with these kinds of feelings and temptations? Um, I've got seven points to make. I'm aware that in the Bible, seven is the number of perfection and completion. Um, but I'm not presuming that in this case. It's either seven or 144,000, so I figured you'd prefer seven, right? <laughs> so here are a few things for us. We need to, we, we mustn't duck this issue. And I know I'm, I'm preaching to the choir here because we're here because we're not ducking the issue and we're talking about it but we must talk about it. Uh, it's too easy and too tempting, understandably, for many churches to think we're just not going to go anywhere near this issue at all because it's too explosive. But the fact is, if we are not being discipled on this issue in our churches, we are going to be discipled on this issue by our culture. We don't remain neutral. Someone's going to be discipling us. There's an application there for parents too, I think. Your kids are going to hear about these issues and be told how to think about these issues. The question is, are you going to be involved in doing that? Uh, I know some churches have a policy of never speaking on this issue because they don't want to lose opportunities they may have for evangelism. But the fact is it, it will cease to be evangelism if it is only talking about those aspects of the faith that the public approve of you talking about. So we mustn't duck the issue. Uh, secondly, we need to make this issue safe to talk about, comfortable to talk about. And that means a few things. It means we need to, to show that we expect this to be an issue inside the church fellowship and not just outside. Um, I was a Christian for, I think, seven years before I opened up to the first person about this issue. It took me that long because I had the idea in my head that you're not supposed to have these feelings if you're a Christian. I was worried that I would lose my new Christian friends if they knew what I was battling with. As I mentioned earlier, many of these friends had used the word gay as a general pejorative that made me think, you're really not going to like me if you know I'm battling with this. And nothing I had heard in church disabused me of any of those notions. It took seven years. What happened eventually to change that was my, my pastor at the time was preaching through Romans 1. He got to the second half of Romans 1, so you realize what issues that lands him on. And as he was preaching on this issue in Romans 1, he just took a few moments in the sermon to say, listen, this is going to be an issue for a number of us here. 
And he said, if that's you here today, I really hope you're not feeling you have to be silent on this. You're not alone. And we would love to talk to you about it. And that was the first time in my Christian life someone had given me permission to speak about struggling with this issue. So it is good for us to show worked examples of Christians who are wrestling with these kinds of issues. Uh, when we conceived and, and put the Living Out website together that I was mentioning earlier, we deliberately have kept the videos short enough that you could show them in a, in a, in a meeting without using up the whole meeting. They're just a few minutes long. But it's a way of putting the issue on the table and effectively saying, hey, yeah, Christians wrestle with this too. Why wouldn't we? Um, related to this, as we've been discussing already today, we mustn't look down on this sin as somehow being in a, a kind of category of its own. All of us are fallen and broken in this area of life. If I can put it this way, there is no one who is straight. For all of us, our, our desires are skewed in one way or another. And also related to this, we need to think through how to best respond if someone does open up to us about this issue, whether that's a, a family member or a friend or whoever it might be, someone else from church. Uh, when my pastor gave that kind of comment in his sermon on Romans 1, I immediately went up to him afterwards and said, can, can we meet up? There's, there's something I'd love to talk to you about. And so a few days later, I was sat in his study. We just had a general kind of conversation. He said, so what was it you, you wanted to talk about? And at that point, I hated the fact that I had arranged this appointment, just like... And I didn't know how to say it, so I just blurted out, I'm really struggling with homosexuality. And then kind of expected fire to fall from heaven or something to happen. And two words came out of his mouth that could not have been more reassuring. He just looked at me and smiled and said, thank you. He said, that sounds like that was a hard thing to say. And so I'm so grateful that you shared that with me. And that made me realize immediately I'd done the right thing, that this was, this was okay. I hadn't now blown my entire future with that church. And he then started to ask me a few gentle questions. He said, how long have you been aware of this and, and what's it been like for you? And as a pastor, I now see the wisdom of that. Again, that importance of listening. We'll, we'll get a sense of what someone will need from us, how we can help someone. We've heard where they're at and what it's like for them. There's a lovely older man in my church called Roger, and Roger and his wife often will kind of collect up people who need a bit of love and care and have them stay with them and that kind of thing. And I remember talking to Roger one evening at church at a meeting, and he said, I can't stick around, I've got to go home. We've got this guy coming to visit. He's in a total mess and I'm going to sit him down and give him a thoroughly good listening to. <laughs> I love that. That's a great way of thinking about it. And when someone does open up on this issue, we, we mustn't then define them by it. And I think most of us know that theologically we shouldn't, but we can still behaviorally define someone by this issue. 
So a member of our church back home several years ago now opened up about this issue to one of my colleagues uh, when I was one of the pastors there. And um, I remember one time that this colleague of mine met him for lunch and, and said, so, so how are things going with homosexuality? And this guy just said to my colleague, and it was something all of us needed to hear, he said, you do know this is, the, this is not the only issue I struggle with, don't you? He said, you always ask me about this, you never ask me about anything else. He said, I'm the CEO of a company that's doing really badly, and I know I'm being a really bad boss, but you never asked me about that. And actually, that was a rebuke all of us needed to hear, because we sometimes assume if someone raises that this is an issue for them, we assume, okay, this is the issue for them. And I can assure you, on any given day of the week, there are any number of sins I'm struggling with. My name is Legion to quote C.S. Lewis. All of this will create a culture where, where we make it safe to talk about that people aren't going to feel like they're now kind of put in a, in, a, in a box because they've raised this issue with people at church. Uh, point number three, we need to celebrate a biblical understanding of sexuality. And there are, there are two parts to this, I think. The first is, is recognizing the significance of our bodies in how the Bible speaks of our sexual identity. Um, our culture is increasingly kind of doing down the significance and meaning of the body. The real you is the person you feel yourself to be inside. That is who you truly are, whereas your body is both accidental and incidental. It's just, it's just randomly come about. If you believe in unguided evolution, it's just, it is the product of accident. And therefore, it, it can only be incidental to who you really are. It doesn't contain within it any kind of clues or scripts or any kind of calling about the person you're meant to be. Whereas in the Bible, our bodies are theologically significant. Uh, David could say, even of his fallen body, that it was fearfully and wonderfully made. Friends, that is true and it is good news. God did mean for you to have the body you have. That doesn't mean the body you have is easy to have. Our bodies have been affected by the fall. Our bodies, in some cases, cause us chronic pain. But no one's body is accidental. And in the Bible, I'm to see my sexual identity not primarily in terms of my feelings, but in terms of my sex. So my sexual identity in the Bible is not same-sex attracted, it's male. And again, that helps us to, to think with that kind of lens because actually my biological sex is part of my eternal identity. Think about it this way. I was born male. I've never ceased to be male. When I am raised from the dead in the resurrection to come, I will be raised as a male. Maleness is part of my eternal identity. 
The same is not true of my sexual feelings. I wasn't born experiencing same-sex attraction. I haven't spent every waking of my life, of moment of my life, experiencing same-sex attraction. When I'm raised in the age to come, I will not be raised with the sexual feelings I've had in this life. Praise God. And so it is foolish for me to locate my, my deepest sense of self in something that I know is temporal. And so the heart of my sexual identity is not in my feelings. Whereas our culture, I think, gets this exactly the other way around and says that no, actually your, your biological sex and your gender identity is entirely plastic. And so if, if your body has the exterior of, of maleness, we can change that. Whereas your sexual orientation is, that is a matter of personhood. That is who you are. And therefore, we are now trying to ban any kind of counseling that would encourage someone to change their sexual orientation. Related to this is, is the second part of this point. If my sexual identity is in my feelings, the next step our culture has taken is to say, and you are your sexuality. Your sexuality is you. It is you at your most you. It is the most foundational, fundamental thing about you. And if that is the case, you cannot be fully you unless you are fulfilling your sexuality. Now that is bad news. It's bad news, obviously, for those who feel as though they're not fulfilling their sexuality, because it's saying to them, listen, the best in life is passing you by. And friends, it is only a few short, tragic steps from someone being told, you are your sexuality, to them hearing that a life without sexual fulfillment is not worth living. And so I do want to engage our culture on who is causing the most psychological harm here. Because the church is not the one saying, this is the be-all and end-all of your life. That if your sexuality isn't going well, then your life isn't going well. That is an appalling thing to say to someone. It is an appalling way of trying to account for what a human being is. But it's also bad news for those who are feeling as though they are fulfilling their sexuality because it's saying to them, listen, this is it. This is life at its fullest. And I've been around too many, particularly college students, who are, frankly are having the kind of sex they want to have with the kind of people they're wanting to have it with, and it's not making life feel complete. We need to remember that the person who was most complete and most fully human never married. 
was never romantically involved and was never in a sexual relationship. And so the moment we make any of those things intrinsic to human fulfillment, we end up by saying Jesus was subhuman. The Apostle John's word for that mentality is antichrist. I was talking to a, a pastor south of the border a few months ago who was talking about the position I, I take, that if you're not in heterosexual marriage, you should be celibate. And he says, you are making people live a life without romantic hope. And I remember thinking, by that anthropology, Jesus Christ was not fully human. Because if you're saying people need to have the prospect of romantic fulfillment in order to live a healthy life, you are saying something dangerous about Jesus Christ. Now, we need to celebrate a biblical understanding of sexuality. You are more than your sexuality, and your sexuality is far more than your feelings. That's actually good news. My whole sense of whether life is going well is not contingent on being sexually satisfied. In fact, the Bible shows me in the life of Jesus and others too that it is entirely possible to lead a fully human life and be single. Which leads to our next point. We need to honor singleness. Um, a good number of people I know who would say that they are still predominantly same-sex attracted have been able to marry people of the other sex and to have a happy and healthy marriage. I know a number of people in that situation. I know a number of other people for whom marriage is just not realistic. So why when someone says, you know, I think I'm same-sex attracted, what does this mean? My advice normally is don't presume you'll get married and don't presume you won't. Which, thinking about it, is probably good advice for everyone, isn't it? <laughs> but there will be some for whom long-term singleness is the most realistic prospect, and therefore we need to show that long-term singleness is a viable way to live in our church families. That means we mustn't denigrate singleness. Um, I ran into someone a while ago I hadn't seen for over 10 years, someone I used to work with. And as we were catching up, I suddenly thought, hang on a sec, your kids were teenagers when I last saw you. They'll be in their mid-late 20s now. So I said, what, what are your kids up to now? And she said, oh, well, so-and-so is married and the other one's engaged, so they're both sorted. And I kind of know what she meant, but I still left me thinking, well, what does that leave me? Am I unsorted? Um, I heard of a church, which probably won't surprise you that it was in Arkansas of all places, where the 20s and 30s group was called Pears and Spares. <laughs> if ever there was a case for bringing back the death penalty immediately, it's for the, <laughs> the bright spark who came up with that idea. 
Friends, we laugh at that because it seems ridiculous, but so much of church culture can feel like it is pairs and spares. We tend to denigrate singleness because we tend to define it purely in terms of what it isn't. It's the state of not being married. So we say a single person is unmarried. We don't say a married person is unsingle. But in uh, 1 Corinthians 7, Paul doesn't define singleness primarily by what it's the absence of, by what it's, but by what it's the presence of. And in fact, the one thing he says it is the absence of is certain troubles in this world. <laughs> Think about that. Uh, there are times when I, I get a bit broody and think, oh man, it'd be great to have a family. It'd be great to have kids. There are other times I'm with friends who have families where I think, actually, do you know what? This is not a walk in the park. <laughs> when can I go home? No, instead, Paul spends most of that passage focusing on what you have the capacity for if you are single, that it wouldn't be appropriate for you to have the capacity for if you were married. There, there are ways in which your service to the Lord can be, can be undivided. You're not being pulled in, in so many directions. But I think the most significant thing in honoring singleness is that we don't say or imply that marriage is the goal of the Christian life. As we were thinking about earlier this morning, marriage is meant ultimately to point to Jesus and the church. That's the real marriage. That is the ultimate marriage. And so therefore our, our human marriages now are not meant to fulfill us. They're meant to point to the thing that can fulfill us. It is a good gift, marriage, don't mishear me, but it is not and cannot be the ultimate gift. And yet I've heard too many Christians say of their spouse what a believer should only ever say of Jesus. I heard one guy recently talking about the girl he'd just got engaged to, a wonderful girl from the sounds of it. But he said at one point, you know what, she's the light of my world. And I thought, brother, she is not. And actually, you're not loving her by saying she is, because God did not make that dear girl to be the light of your world, and someone else has already got that job. Um, I mean every word of this, but I don't mean it to be cruel. It is true. Friend, if you marry someone thinking they are going to fulfill you, you're going to be a nightmare to be married to. Because you're putting a burden on someone they are not designed to bear. Um, I was taking a marriage um, a few months ago, a lovely couple at church. And at one point in the sermon, I just felt led to say to them, listen, if, you, if at some point you feel your marriage disappoints you, please bear in mind that's because it's supposed to. It's not meant to be ultimate. It's meant to point to the thing that will be ultimate. 
Now, maybe don't put that in your anniversary card, but... Um, <laughs> but we do need to think about that. Uh, I mentioned earlier that I'm, I'm not very cultured, so let me, let me quote the great Derek Zoolander. <laughs> uh, who's seen the first Zoolander movie? Okay, we all need to repent of that, but <laughs> let me quote it anyway. Um, uh, the Zoolander movie is based on the notion that the more good-looking you are, the more stupid you are. That's the kind of fundamental premise. Personally, I find that very offensive, but... Um, <laughs> but the main character is, uh, is very, very good-looking and therefore really stupid. And there's a scene in the movie where some people have decided they're going to they're build a school in his honour. And uh, some of you know the scene I'm talking about. They, they have the architect's model already. He walks into the room. They can show him the school. I heard it. Who did it? Yes, exactly. They, so he, he, he's furious. It needs to be at least three times bigger than this. And the, the stupidity of the scene is he's mistaken the model for the real thing. <laughs> Friends, we do that so easily with marriage. We think marriage is going to be what fixes life. We think marriage is going to be what meets our most fundamental needs. It's the same mistake. Here's the great thing. Because of what marriage points to, it means that we can both uphold and honor marriage while at the same time not worshipping it. We honor it because of what it points to, but the fact that it points beyond itself shows us it's not itself ultimate. It doesn't have to carry the freight of our entire sense of fulfillment and worth. I was reflecting on um, the woman at the well in John 4 recently, and I, something occurred to me that I'd never thought of before. Just, just turn there if you would. Uh, John chapter 4, some of us will, will know this episode well. Jesus is traveling up through Samaria, needs a pit stop, finds a well in a Samaritan town, parks himself there for a bit. The disciples disappear to find a Walmart and get some food. And whilst Jesus is there, a, a, a Samaritan woman comes in the middle of the day to draw water. And the fact that she's there in the middle of the day indicates she's most likely an outcast because it's not a comfortable time to be out and about. And Jesus has this conversation with her. He asks her for a drink and then says, actually, you should be asking me for a drink because I can give you living water. Which he kind of gets and then doesn't quite get. And so Jesus says, whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says, verse 15, I'll take it. She says, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So 
hey, I don't know what you're talking about, but if it means I don't have to make this, this commute every day in the baking heat, sign me up. I'll have some. And then Jesus does something that always strikes us as very strange. He says to her in the next verse, go and get your husband and bring him here. And you kind of think, why is he saying that? Is there a kind of a couple's special when it comes to living water, a kind of sign up as a couple and get a discount? She has to come clean in verse 17 and say, actually, I'm not married. I don't have a husband. And then we think, man, is Jesus being a jerk? Is this a bit like when you say to someone, you say to a lady, hey, when's the baby due? And she says, yeah, I'm not pregnant. Is this that kind of thing? But then we see what Jesus is, is doing because he then says to her, verse 17, no, 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 I know you're right in saying I have no husband. Actually, you've had five husbands. And the clock's ticking on number six. He's not even your husband yet. Jesus hasn't changed the subject. Jesus is still speaking about living water. She wants this living water, and so he's showing her where this idea of drinking and being satisfied most connects with her life. She has been looking for living water in relationships. Each time a marriage hasn't worked out, she's been thinking, maybe the next one will. I just haven't found the right person yet who will give me that deep inner sense of satisfaction. But here's the thing I realized. In the ancient world, only men could initiate divorce. So she has been rejected five times. Five men have said, I don't want to be married to you anymore. So she has two needs now. She needs someone who can satisfy her, but someone who won't reject her. Someone who can bear the full weight of her soul. And of course, he's standing right in front of her. He is the only one who can bear the full weight of our whole soul. No other person can. One outworking of this fact that, that the real marriage is in Christ is what that says about singleness now. Because the ultimate marriage is, is to Jesus, Jesus says we won't marry or be given in marriage in the, in the age to come. We will have the reality. We won't need the model. And in the light of that, singleness becomes prophetic. Singleness now is a way of saying, I am living now in the way that I will be. Because the way I will be living is so real and so good, we can live according to it now. So if marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, 
Singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel, and therefore we must honor it. And it should be the case that people in our churches, and I have this conversation a lot with youth pastors who say, how can I help the, the kind of the younger people in our church to kind of buy into the biblical ethics on, on sex and marriage? Part of the answer is they need to see from their own church family that long-term singleness can be a means of, a means of relationally flourishing. If that is already being modeled to them in the church family, that will be one less obstacle to them seeing the goodness of God's Word. So we need to honor singleness, and I need to speed up. So point number five, we need to promote friendship. Um, The biggest battle for most same-sex attracted Christians I've met is not sexual temptation, but loneliness. Um, In our culture, we have so collapsed intimacy and sex into each other that we don't really conceive of one without the other. So we find it very hard to conceptualize a form of intimacy that isn't ultimately about sex. And so when we hear of previous generations talking about very deep friendship, we kind of roll our eyes and say, oh, well, they must have been gay because we know better. You don't really get intimacy where there's no sex involved. The Bible shows us you can have lots of sex and no intimacy. And you can have lots of intimacy and no sex. Uh, We see that in the life of Jesus. He was someone who experienced intimacy We see that in the life of Paul. Paul had a lot of intimacy. If you read through Romans chapter 16, we often skip over it. It feels like the kind of end credits of Romans. But if you stop and look at the different people Paul is speaking about and the language he uses, you realize it's familial language. Paul was not a lone ranger. In the Bible, sex is meant to express and deepen intimacy in marriage. It can't in and of itself create it. But because of how our culture thinks, we have, uh, how our culture thinks, we've now downgraded friendship. Because the only kind of relationship we're interested in is the romantic and the sexual one. Friendship now has become just the kind of person you vaguely hang out with. And so we've changed friend from a noun into a verb. So you friend someone when you add them on Facebook and that, hey, that's a new friend now. They've got access to your page. Therein constitutes friendship. If you read the book of Proverbs, a friend is someone who knows your soul and you cannot be wise in God's world without friends. Uh, Jesus says in John 15 verse 15, I no longer call you servants. Instead, I've called you friends. Why? He gives us the reason, and the reason shows us what Jesus sees as being the heart of friendship. He says, for everything the Father has revealed to me, I've made known to you. A servant doesn't know his master's business, but I've, I've given you guys full access. That, for Jesus, is friendship. You let someone in. 
Uh, the Hebrew word for friend in the Old Testament is very closely related to the, the word for secret. A friend is someone you tell your secrets to. It is a wonderful form of intimacy. And we need to recover the lost art of friendship in our churches. And by the way, married people need it too. I've seen more than one marriage implode because they didn't have friends. They, again, they were thinking each other was meant to meet all of their emotional and intimacy needs. Uh, point number six is we need to provide good pastoral care. I'm going to skip over explaining the different ways that can, can play out. Number seven, we need to remember that the church is family. That was Jesus' point in Mark 10. He is promising that people will receive husband, uh, husbands and fathers, mothers and fathers. That would be a very different outworking, wouldn't it? Mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters. When the Bible uses that family language of, of church, it means it. It means it more than we do. We tend to talk about the church being a family because it makes us sound welcoming. But Paul says to, to Timothy, treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger men as brothers, younger women as sisters. I think I've got those the right way around. He doesn't say treat older men as distant uncles. He says treat them as family and treat them as close family. That is what the church is meant to be. And therefore, if you have a biological family, the boundary between your biological family and your spiritual family should be porous and blurred. Because your spiritual family is also your real family. And the blood of Christ is thicker than the blood of biology. Um, it is a two-way blessing. God always gives us win-win situations. If we in incorporate other people into our family life, it, it blesses those other people. But it also blesses the family. Kids get to see other worked examples of the Christian life close up, people who aren't mum and dad. Kids having the input of, of other people into their lives let me just be honest, has a wonderfully moderating effect against the natural weirdness that is otherwise going to come from the fact that they are your kids. Okay, parents, because your kids are your kids, they're going to be a bit weird. <laughs> and if you're thinking, well, my kids aren't weird, the rest of us think they are. Okay? <laughs> Every parent's got their own kind of eccentricity, and every, function, every family's a bit dysfunctional. I was talking to a friend of mine, he said, I've given up saving up for my, my kid's university education. I'm saving up for his therapy. <laughs> there are going to be some things that actually, well, put it this way, no two parents can be all the things their kids need them to be. In, in the UK, where I'm from, there's this 
mentality now, and it's really seeped into the church, that the family is meant to be self-sufficient and self-contained. And so when we have our, our spouse and our 2.6 children and the retriever, we, we pull up the drawbridge and we now have the basic unit in which we do life. That is not biblical. And it's not good for your family. Let me close by sharing some verses from uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Uh, verses 14 and 15. Do look these up if you've got a Bible to hand. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. It's one of those verses preachers love because Paul is telling you why he wrote the letter. That's kind of helpful. So, 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, Paul says, I hoped to come to you soon. This seems to be a theme of Paul's letters. But I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Paul describes the church in two particular ways there. Firstly, as the, as the pillar and buttress of the truth, some translations even the foundation of the truth. That seems weird, because we think, rightly, the church is the, is the pillar and foundation of the church. If you take the truth away, the church will fall down. But Paul is saying there is a sense in which the church is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Because the church is God's outlet for the truth in the world. And so the truth that the church is meant to be the means by which the truth is held up and held out towards a world that needs to hear it. Paul also describes the church as the household of God. It's his family. If God is my father, then you become my brother and my sister. And I want to suggest that those two things have to go together. The church will not be an effective pillar for the truth if it is not an effective family. It's why having good doctrine on this issue is necessary but not sufficient. If you're teaching the right things about Christian sexual ethics, but not providing the relational means for people to flourish, then I think we're guilty of what Jesus accused some of the teachers of his day of doing, of loading people up with a... With a a bag of rocks they can't bear. Um, I think I'm getting this from a, a theologian I read a few months ago, but that intimacy is a, is a bit like food. Just imagine if you had the choice between no food at all and really unhealthy junk food, you would choose really unhealthy junk food because you've got to eat. 
If it's bad food or starvation, you eat bad food. If the choice for someone in our churches is between no intimacy and unbiblical intimacy, they will choose unbiblical intimacy. We can live without sex, that's, actually that's fine. We're not designed to live without intimacy. We are made to be known and loved. Uh, we've had a couple of situations in my church where someone has married an unbeliever and it's been their way outside, their, it's been their way out of the faith. That is disobedience and they are culpable for that, but I also want to ask ourselves as the church family, do we share some of the culpability for that? Were we providing a viable alternative? Were we providing a sense of family? The way we're going to win people to Christ on this issue is going to be through local churches. The way to see people in our culture change on this issue is not going to be that we find some mythical mega-Christian that we can just kind of catapult into the public square and that person will out-awesome everybody else and that will win the day. It will be when people see LGBT folks coming to Christ and flourishing in our churches in a way they never would have flourished outside our churches. then they will begin to wonder what we believe and what is driving that. Then we will see a harvest.